Intersections podcast with Phil Allen. I'm Phil Allen, your host, and um, I have a very special guest today, Dr. Rodney Smith. He's a professor at UMKC. He's someone I've known for many, many years. We've had many of these conversations over the years um, at the intersection of race, theology, and culture. I'm going to let him introduce himself in just a second, but um, this is not only is he a friend, not only is he uh, someone I look up to as a professor, um, but he's, he's, he's family. We go back to when we was a kid playing playing sports, and he's somebody I looked up to and wanted to wanted to be like him, wanted to walk like him. Um, but he uh, he's here today, and we're going to engage in this conversation at this intersection. So, uh, Dr. Smith, first of all, welcome, welcome to Intersections. Uh, I'm going to give you the floor for just a few minutes and let you introduce yourself. Let the people know who you are. Thank you, my brother. Thank you, man. And you're right, brother. We uh, literally we are family, <laughs> uh, and it's 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 a beautiful thing, man, just to see um, how our lives have turned out together. And we've grown, literally grown together, man. So I'm I'm proud of the work that you do. Thank you. Um, absolutely, brother. Um, and you say that you look up to me, but I also look up to you, even though you're a younger <laughs> cousin. <laughs> Uh, for the work that you do, man. I appreciate it. It's a, it's a powerful thing, brother. So I'm Rodney Smith. Um, as, as Phil stated, I'm, we're originally from Georgetown, South Carolina. Um, left Georgetown a long time ago. I was about to say the year, but I'll I, I, I hold <laughs> off. <laughs> and uh, went, to, went to the Atlanta University Center, studied at Morris Brown. In fact, my undergrad degree, believe it or not, is in architecture. That was mine. That was my initial. <laughs> my initial. I did not know that. Initial, man. I went to school A and T for architectural engineering. Yeah. So, did my degree in architecture. Worked at an architecture firm for two years, just before the Olympics came to Atlanta. Um, you know, it was a small eight-man office that we were part of, but had our hands in about, I think it was about fifty million dollars in construction. Wow that was in preparation for the Olympics to come to Atlanta. Um, but if I'm being honest, man, being behind a drafting board or being behind an autocad screen, kind of realized that it wasn't, I, I was doing it for me. And I often tell people that uh, the architecture was for me. And now that I'm in the educational world, education is for we. That's good. That's um, good. Yeah, education is um, my calling. It doesn't feel much like work. Um, and I'd like to believe that I'm still using some of the principles of architecture. If you, if we believe the philosophy that an architect is a master builder, um, I'd like to believe that I'm helping to people now to build their lives. Um, and so I still use some of the principles because I understand that whatever you put in first serves as the foundation upon which you erect a building. Absolutely. You know? And so whatever you put in a person in a person's life, especially a young child, um, becomes that foundation upon which he or she will stand. And so I, I like to believe, you know, I'm, I'm a part of that building of, of humans, if you will, um, with God's assistance, of course. Left, left uh, Atlanta in 1998, went to Nashville, Tennessee, was working at Fisk University at the time, but then also started 
towards graduate degrees, got a master's degree in education administration, later got a doctoral degree also in education administration, um, did some work with uh, curriculum design and uh, kind of found myself doing some own personal research relative to this conversation around race and racism. Always, um, it always puzzled me, this notion of race and racism. In fact, I remember my first encounter that I remember that I'm cognizant of was in the second grade. Mm. A classmate of mine called me the N-word. And I remember that I wasn't upset, but I knew I was supposed to be upset. <laughs> and so as a result of me supposed to be upset, I took him and, and he was sitting at his desk. I turned him and his desk over. Yeah. And Miss Sumter uh. <laughs> took us down to the hall, down to the office, fighting. Me and a white guy named uh, Tony Harper. Never forget. Uh -huh. Yeah, Dad. He called me the N word, and so that that began my journey of studying this thing called race, particularly racism. Yeah. You know, like like Tanahasi Co says, Brother Tanahasi says that. Um, you know, we used to believe that race was the grandparent to racism, but he, he flips it and says that racism created race. And I struggled with his analogy first, but now I, I, I agree with him. The mindset of trying to stratify human beings and separate human beings must have been there first in order then to create the pseudoscience of race, this, this specious classification, if you will, this false classification of human yeah. beings. I, I, we I, are, agree, you know, I agree with Coach's yeah. comment, but I'm going to push it further after. after go ahead, you go ahead. I'm going to push it a little bit further. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, Cause I, I agree that it's not race first, but I put, I put racism after race and I believe it's white supremacy that is oh, the father yes. of race that created this invention of race and out of yes. that became the system, the science, the, the, the whole thing that developed after yeah. that, that we have to now navigate. But the mind yeah. what's in the mind, yes. the, the origin, the core, which we'll get into more a little bit later yes. is white supremacy. Yes. Right. Yes. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, I've been thinking about and talking about that later. And I, and, and I recognize that, there are many people that take big umbrage. You know, they're offended almost, not almost, literally. They're offended that we would consider white supremacy to be the origins of um, racism, much largely because we've equated white supremacy only to known hate mongers in our yes. society. You know, the, the, the white nationalists, the neo-Nazis, um, skinheads, but the, I know the, the, the white supremacy that you're speaking of and the one that I'm speaking yeah. of is, uh, um, is an ideology, that, you know, the idea that permeates our absolutely. system, that positions whiteness as the ideal of humanity. The ideal of humanity, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and, and of course, I borrowed that definition from uh, uh, Robin DiAngelo in her much acclaimed book, Wonderful Scholarship white fragility um 
but you know, I, I agree. And I don't, I don't, I can't disagree with you that, you know, white supremacy is at the core of it. it, it, it it's the belief system that spawned yeah. r- racism um, because now they believe, you know, many of us believe. And the funny thing and the interesting thing about white supremacy is that I often jokingly say that it's an equal opportunity yeah. for you. Yeah. <laughs> it employs that it employs all of us to sometimes slip into this notion that you know that's what it, the, the 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 you know that's where the analogy of the the, the, the kind of even jokingly the tongue in cheek that some black people say in the black community is like oh yeah you know white man's ice is cold <laughs> yeah, yeah you yeah, know yeah. that's where it comes yeah, from yeah that's where it comes from this idea that we all have drunk the Kool Aid of white supremacy in some regards yeah. where you know if a white man don't approve it and then say it's so, it ain't, it's not valid. Then it ain't yeah. so. It's not valid. And I think even Tim Wise talks about that in much of his writings. You know, even his first his first book, his first publication, which I think is his, probably his strongest publication. He's had some great ones after the first one, but the first one was White Like mm-hmm. Me. And he said, largely, you're reading this book because I am white. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's like, the things that I'm about to mention to you in this book about racism and white supremacy, black people have been saying it for years. That's who I learned from. Yeah. But but the reason you're reading this book is because I'm yeah. white. It's not valid until a white wow. man says so. You know, and he says that. He says that. In wow. Book. I, I, um, no, I, yeah. I wanted to I wanted to um, I wanted to pause for a moment before we go too before we get too deep in in the waters right how are you doing yeah given so, given uh, everything that's going on the last few months and we can go back years but specifically the last few months yeah. ahmaud arbery yeah. brianna taylor uh george yeah. floyd other videos that have surfed surfaced the the re-traumatization in the midst of covid 19 yeah. yeah staying at home all that stuff how are you doing my brother yeah. So I'm glad you asked him, man. I appreciate you asking. Uh, at the moment, I'm doing quite well. Um, a part that I did not mention in my introduction is that in addition to my work um, at UMKC in the School of Education as a graduate adjunct professor, um, I also manage uh, my own consulting company called Sofix Solutions, yes. my wife and I. And so um, and we do our work through an equity lens. We are a change management firm. Um, we do change management specifically with an eye toward equity and trying to help organizations figure out how to do better with this idea of equity. Um, so we, you know, we ask organizations when we go in to talk to them and consult with them, we examine um, where equity lives in four different areas. First being pedagogy. And we we mean pedagogy more than just um, in a classroom setting or how you teach a lesson, if you will. But pedagogy means the overarching philosophy of how you approach your work. And so even if you are a business that is a for-profit organization, we still, we would like to help you examine if equity lives or resides in what you do, what you say that you do. And then we help them look at their policies to see if equity are in the policy. And a lot of times what we've been finding is inequity. Yeah. It's been codified yeah. in, in policies. And then we also look at practice. 
um, how you practice, how you implement what it is that you say that you do. And then the last P is people. Of course, the culture of an institution, whatever your culture upholds, will indeed be what it is. Um, and that's what we come up with, you know, again, you know, analogies and idioms like, uh, you know, culture is strategy for breakfast. <laughs> you know, if your culture won't withstand the great strategies that you put in place, um, <laughs> it's, it's for not, that strategy ends up being for not. And so we help organizations examine themselves. And so as a result of what's been going on in, in, in the public sphere for the past couple of months, um, starting with, you know, Ahmaud Arbery and um, our sister, Brianna Taylor, and then of course, George Floyd, which was the, the big one, the linchpin in some for us to kind of usher in the conversation in a more broad way. We've, we've, we've had an opportunity to talk with a number of organizations trying to manage and navigate race in the workplace, you know, and racism, I should say, in the workplace. Um, and so we've had an opportunity to talk to a lot of organizations and, and us doing that talking has been ther therapeutic for me too. Yeah. You know, being able to unpack some of these things and seeing people, you know, largely through Zoom, um, but seeing a full a, a screen full of people of all walks of life, all backgrounds, having a real serious conversation about race. And for the past, again, four or five months, and I've been having daily conversations multiple times a day about race and racism. And it's a moment in every conversation that I'm fighting back tears because I cannot believe that we're really literally having a conversation about race. Yes. In, in fact, many of the organizations will have a time limit to say an hour, hour and 30 minutes, sometimes two hours. And we repeatedly exceed that the, the, the time period. People are asking for more. It's like, oh, where's the time going? Has it been two hours already? That, you know, we're leaning into this conversation. So it's been, it's been therapeutic for me to have these conversations. And I really feel like um, we're, we're, we're having a moment in our society, which I, I want it to be more than just a moment though. Mm -hmm. You know, I wanted to transform myself into momentum. Momentum, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so we can have ultimately a movement similar to I think I think the civil rights era was a moment that turned into momentum that turned into a yeah. movement. I mean, we can we can date it back to you know when our sister Rosa Parks turned that moment yeah. into momentum that created a yeah. movement. That's good. And uh, I think that I think that this is our opportunity as well. So I just want us to be able to sustain it. Because I think moments like that, again, will indeed sustain us. Because we were talking about the civil rights movement. If we compare today to the civil rights movement, we're still in re we're still reaping the benefits of that era. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know absolutely. what I mean? And and I think the civil rights movement was reaping the benefits of a, another era called Reconstruction. Yeah. But we you don't know? we don't appreciate what, no. what what those those moments those movements have done we've taken them for granted we know some highlights yes but i think we've taken them for yes. granted no I, I agree i totally agree with you that we underestimate the power of those movements so, say for instance you take the, the reconstruction period which was the period right after the emancipation that was followed then by jim crow yeah yeah Here, we have these moments where, where the country ebbs and flows with progress and then we have these setbacks 
But through that era, you know, we we started a conversation off you and I before we, I think before we even went on air, we were talking about our experiences at historically black colleges. You know, well, most of the historically black colleges, most of them, not all of them, were spawned during reconstruction. reconstruction. They were they were founded during reconstruction. Yeah. And even if they were founded after reconstruction, like many schools, like the graduate school I went to, I think Tennessee State University was founded in 1912. Yeah which was technically after reconstruction. Yeah. But I think the, the the beginning, the thinking about it, the dreaming about the plans started in reconstruction. Absolutely. The, the move, it was a movement. You know, it was a movement. So it, it continued. It was a movement. You got, what, 100, right. 117 HBCUs? That's right. Historically Black Colleges. That's right. A&T um, was founded in 1891. That was after Reconstruction. Right. So that movement, right, right in the middle of it. Yeah, because mm -hmm. that that was what we needed at the time. We need absolutely to go from what 70, 75 percent of African Americans at a time were illiterate, and the schools yeah. began to be built, not just colleges, obviously, but high schools as well, going into the 20th century, and and education. That's what we needed then, you know. Yes. And so that movement, and then the, going into the Civil Rights Movement. And, years later i just don't yeah. think that we really appreciate and i i would say in our community to a degree obviously more so than other communities but across yes. racial lines we don't look back to those right. those moments reconstruction civil yes. rights yes and really learn from those times no i agree with you man and i think that there i think that, that, that that's an example that his, historically black colleges we talk about equity mm -hmm understanding that equity means, I think we sometimes conflate it, we get we confuse it with equality. Of course, equality, just as it sounds, means that people get the same things, people get equal things. Equity, however, is in always in direct relation to inequity, right? So African-Americans were not allowed to educate themselves at, 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 at historically white institutions and i use the term historically white because that's what mm -hmm. they are and that's what they were a lot of times we say pwis or we just say universities yeah. you know what i mean but I, you know even the school i work for umkc didn't start accepting african-american students on mass until the 1960s the late yeah. 60s so you're historically white institution but anyway the point i'm making is we recognized that we were inequitable in providing access for black people to get an education. And so we opened all these institutions to try to level the playing field for black people. But what's so beautiful about those institutions, our historically black institutions, we were never discriminatory in who we allowed. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so it became a rising tide to lift all boats. So anybody who now, because you now you have several institutions that are historically black, but are now predominantly yeah. white because more white students are being admitted yeah. for various reasons. They can't go to the other schools or they can't afford to go to the other schools or the, the, the black college is more convenient for them to attend. They have the major they want to major the in. Program, the program, you know, like the program. I, I think about A&T, um, you, you look on the campus in the dorms, I think there were two white people on our campus back in the 90s, a, a, a white right. girl and a white guy. But if you yeah. go in the, in the architectural building, uh, McNair, during the day, you saw the world. That's right. The entire you world. You saw the world. Indian. The United the Nations. United, the UN, man. And I was, I was surprised, to be honest with you. 
but it was it was a welcome it, it was it was a uh, I embraced it I loved it but it's good yes. you know I, I I asked that question how are you doing man because um for me I, I struggled for probably a week and a half almost two weeks before I realized why um what happened with George Floyd in front of our eyes why did it hit me yeah. more than any other you know we've yeah. seen these videos Walter Scott was shot in the back running away we've seen yeah. the rodney king um eric garner uh we've yeah. seen it before our eyes right yeah. but man when i watched that cop's eyes when he looked into the camera it re-triggered something in my body my body responded and there was a grief that mm. came over me absolutely i didn't even realize it why why was it like i could be texting somebody and and start tearing up right mm -hmm. um and what it took me back 18 years 20 years to when i was in new york and this cop had profiled us in my neighborhood pulled us over wouldn't tell us why you know got angry because i i had said something you know um asked for you know made sure you get his badge and, and id and name he got upset and he made us get out of the car and he stared at me and he said i can i can put you in i can put you in jail right now for whatever i want and there's nothing you can do about it mm. and he was just staring at me and I, th I think he was trying to provoke me yeah of course and it was that that's what that's what it was that cop looking into the yeah. camera on george floyd's neck his eyes took me back to that cop in new york and my body had responded, and it took about a week and a half before my mind understood why I was grieving so much, more than just what I saw. And so um, I, I even posted a video that I, I'm not okay. I yeah. wasn't doing okay. Uh, so I just wanted to check on you, man, and, and make sure you, you yeah. know, you're, you're doing well. No, you, you're absolutely correct, man, because you know you made me think about early on in the you know, the George, the George Floyd's, Floyd's murder that we saw on um, on television. I mean, on on repeat, on every network, you know, that you can think of, we saw it. Um, and so early on, I remember, um, you know, I, I think that I try to sometimes adhere to <laughs> antiquated sensibilities that a man is supposed to show his emotions and supposed to be able to compartmentalize and supposed to be able to handle everything. I think I've compartmentalized to my own detriment. I remember coming back from the golf course one day and um, we were in, of course, in the middle of COVID and, but, you know, the local golf course that where I play most, they were allowing us to play, but we'd have to, you couldn't use the golf cart and walk. And so I went and Thought it would be therapeutic for me and get some exercise which it was but i still had this sadness that i couldn't shake and i didn't recognize and realize how sad i was about it and my wife i was on my deck after i came back from playing golf and i was on the deck you know enjoying the evening trying to at least poured me a beverage and was just out there by myself and my wife came up and she said hey what's wrong and i was like she never wrong she was like no, what's up, woman? You, you, you're never like this. And so she said, if you need to cry, you then cry. Yeah. 
you know? And uh, I was like, oh, you know, I don't need to cry. What are you talking about? You know what I mean? Um, and, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't cry until I think I got a phone call from my brother. And we talked about it. And we were just talking about how, I mean, internally hurt he was from seeing it, you know, and I, when I hung up the phone from him, I just actually lost yeah. it. That same day, that same day after my wife had come, went back in the house, I got a phone call from my brother right after my wife had just said to babe, you, you seem this, you seem sad. And so, you know, what is it that will cause me to lose tears <laughs> from, from a brother I never met, never knew in this world. You know, I never knew him. But why was it so important to me that I lost tears? Why was I so sad? Why did my brother call me in such despair? Because, and why were you feeling that, carrying that grief around? Because that's how our bodies deal with grief. And, but I think the grief that we're dealing with is a, is a realization that that could have been me. Absolutely. You know what I mean? That there's a realization that we understand that we are indeed targets. Absolutely. In our own in our own country. You, you know. And I think that, yeah, I think that that's you know I think that that's what we see sometimes in our young black males, with the I, I, with, with, with I would describe as the oppositional stance from society. You know, they sometimes get the message that when they find out that they they uh, that they when they find out that race is a real thing. And not only is race a real thing, racism is too. And not only that, but they are the targets of it. <laughs> they get an opposition to it. They get in stance, they get in a stance against yeah. it. And sometimes, unfortunately, they make everybody the enemy. You know, those who are not against them, those who don't see them as a target, but they believe that everybody sees them as a target. And so they see everybody else as a target. Yeah. I think that that's what happens here sometimes. Yeah, uh, I lost my train of thought, man. It was, it was so good. It was so good. <laughs> I'll come back to it. Um, you, we talked a little bit about HBCUs and, and during Reconstruction and, and education. Um, you're an educator. Um, yeah. um, I, I'm moving in that direction. Um, God willing, I complete this PhD program. Um, and I'll, I'll be following my, my cousin's footsteps. Um, but this this program, this this intersection podcast is about educating people. It's about informing people. Yeah. I, I don't just want our opinions. You know, I want to make right. sure people walk away uh, feeling like they've been informed about some things, even if it's just through conversation like this. You are listening to Intersections with Phil Allen Jr. The following is a trailer to the documentary short film, Open Wounds. I have a story to tell, a story of pain, of loss, of gain, of cost. The story of trauma, the drama of birth and new birth, lost and found self-worth. Before Emmett Till, there was Nate Allen my grandfather. His body found face down, floating in the Sandpit River at the hands of a racist pulling a rifle's trigger. In this story, I gave racism a name. I call him Cain. 
since he rendered my grandfather unable to speak the truth about what happened on that river in the low country, home of the Gullah speaking Geechees that raised me. But the voice of his blood cries out from the earth. And the question is, who's listening? You can view Open Wounds right now at openwoundsdoc.com. That's openwoundsdoc.com. Now, let's get back to the conversation. But you wrote a book right. called Are We Really Crabs in a Barrel? Um, I love, I love the book. Um, yeah. I, I use it as a, a point, of, point of reference when I'm writing papers and even in conversations. I want you to share a little bit about the, the, the major premise argument um, yeah. in your book and what inspired you to write it. Yeah. Well, first of all, man, let me acknowledge and congratulate you, brother, for the perseverance of doing the work of a PhD. You know, um, and also a stop to acknowledge, man, that we come from a state, South mm -hmm. Carolina. If you understand anything about history, that in 1740 passed the first law in this country that prohibited the education of enslaved Africans. Mm -hmm. Right now, if there are any people, <laughs> any two people that I know of, <laughs> if we just simply because we have this conversation, but if, if there's any two people that I know that are, that is 99% certain that we're descendants of those enslaved Africans, yeah. <laughs> it's you and I. Absolutely. That the, the same book that you talk about when I was doing some research for that book, I found out that in our hometown, Georgetown, South Carolina, in 1850 there were 20,000 people in Georgetown in 1850. Of the 20,000, 90%, 90% of the 20,000 were enslaved Africans, mm. meaning 18,000 of the 20,000 people were enslaved mm. Africans. So now what's the likelihood of you and I being descendants of those 18,000 people? Absolutely. <laughs> so now I'm, I'm going somewhere <laughs> and now you talking about, I've already completed a doctoral degree. Yep. 10 years yeah. ago <laughs> in education, by yeah. the way, <laughs> and you about to get a PhD, the highest degree, the highest education that you can get in this country. And you are descendants of the people who were, it was written into law that you couldn't even educate yourself. I, I just want to stop and acknowledge Sit on that. that. Yeah. <laughs> Sit on that. You know what I mean? And, and, it, and it perfectly segues into the premise behind the book. Because you and I would not have been able to accomplish what we've accomplished. And what I'm saying is we've not accomplished all that we've accomplished by ourselves. Yes. People need people. And most of the people that assisted my life or along my journey were African-American mm -hmm. people. Most of the people. And so it, it, it runs counter to this narrative that Black people are not supportive of each other. You know, this crabs in a barrel mentality that people often talk about that says that black people, oh, we just want to pull each other down. We don't want to see each other progress. You wouldn't be nearing a PhD <laughs> if that were the truth. Man, please. <laughs> if, that, if, if that were the truth, yeah. if black people didn't support each other, we sat here and talked about historically black colleges. Yeah. Yeah. If black people were really, truly crabs in a barrel as we describe yeah. them, those things would not be exactly. true. 
You know what I mean? So that's the, the premise for the book that I've always taken umbrage. I've always, I've always been challenged and I disagree with this notion that we're crabs in a barrel trying to pull each other down. In fact, crabs are not even crabs in a barrel mm. trying to pull each other down the way we teach, describe it. Teach. I, lo- I love it. I know what's <laughs> coming. I love it. Teach. <laughs> the way we describe it, you know, crabs, I, you know, again, I, I'm careful to say I'm not a marine biologist. <laughs> <laughs> I am an educator. But, in, a, in, a, in, you know, as I was writing the book, I thought I'd do a little bit of studying of crabs. Yeah. And... You know, I, I, I recognize and know through studying that crabs in their natural environment, they live in communities. Mm. When, when, when the current is rough in the ocean, they, they, they cling to each other so they can stay together. Uh, when danger is happening to catch food, wow. they get in community. Wow. You know, they live in community. Spider crabs, when they're exposing of the disposing of their shells, the ones who aren't in that process of exposing, the, you know, disposing themselves of the shell to grow a new shell, the ones who are not will cover the ones who are exposed mm. until their shells grow back. Mm. Right? Yeah. So we've mischaracterized crabs and the humans who we can Wow. To. Stop right there for a second. <laughs> before we even go further, because I wouldn't even think, we, we've had this conversation before and I never thought about that. We've mischaracterized crabs. We've mischaracterized crabs. As well as the humans who we compare as to. As well as the humans. <laughs> the, so the analogy is, is, is false from the very beginning. From the beginning. Therefore, our understanding of what it means to be crabs in a barrel will, is going to be false. That's exactly And that's what we speak over and over to ourselves. And we actually right. end up believing that. So then we do what? We start acting it out. We start that being this false narrative of crabs in a barrel. But if we really understood what you just said from the beginning, yeah. we would have embraced being crabs in a barrel. That's right. The way it was intended. That's, <laughs> that's exactly Because right. we're talking natural natural practices. And natural practices. Go bro. ahead, man. I just wanted to. But, but no, no, that's beautiful, bro. I, you, you helped me contextualize it in a way that I've not contextualized it before. In, in fact... You know, as a result of writing this book about crabs, I started watching this TV show called The Deadliest mm-hmm. Catch. And if you watch that show, it's a, it's a reality TV show about the business of catching crabs, typically king crabs, these large crabs. But what you would notice if you watch the show that they never catch crabs one at a time. Mm. They always catch them in community. Because what I, I believe is happening, when that large net from the, from the boat, the, the, the crabbing boat, is the crabs are recognizing that something dangerous is yeah. happening and they come together and say, hey, man, something yeah. dangerous is happening. We probably need to get together. So that's why I believe that they're doing what they're doing in that barrel. Because the, the point that we don't think about is somebody put them in the barrel. Crabs and put themselves mm-hmm. in the barrel. Yeah, yeah. In order to consume them on the dinner table, because from the crab, from the barrel, they go into a boiling pot of water. Put them in the barrel in order to <laughs> consume them. In order to consume them. Continue. <laughs> you know, and so could it be that some black people have been forced to live in barrel-like conditions wow. in America? Wow. You talk about our history. You know, uh, every city, major city. There's a black side of town. I mean, even in our small yeah. town, you know, high market streets sort of served as a dividing line yeah. 
And then there's another part of the time we used to call across yep. the tracks. <laughs> I, I don't ever remember any white people ever being across yeah. the tracks. <laughs> you know? You know, on, you know, we talk about the West End. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So <laughs> Yeah. So so as I'm reading your book, I'm 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 starting to get this not starting to, but I'm getting this this understanding of the barrel. And because you, yes. you you talked once about unnatural conditions. And I think yes. another another area that we underappreciate um, across racial lines is the the conditions in which groups of people live in that actually produce personalities, success or not. Um, we don't we don't think about the conditions and how did those conditions come about, right? Yeah. Can can you speak yeah. Can you speak to that? His, you know, because you 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 take us on a little his, historical journey. Um, in, in the book, and, and I hope people get the book, go to Amazon and get the book, Are We Really Crabs in a Barrel by Dr. Rodney um, D. Smith. And you take us on this journey, and I, I firmly believe that where we are today, we're living out the legacy. We, you can't divorce the present from your past. You, you need to understand That's your right. past to understand how we get here. That's because right. the conversation that I typically have with a lot of my white brothers and sisters, I start with the question, do you know how we got here? Yeah. Do you know how we got here? Do you know? And, do you do you know the, the narrative that that's that that's being <laughs> that's been been spread? Do you know why yes. there, there there's there's profiling? Do you know why we're filling the prisons yes. and yet we only make up thirteen percent of the population? Do you know why our communities are the yes. way they are? You know, I mean, if you if yes. you be honest, yes. we can produce, we can reproduce any community we want. By yes. pouring in resources or withholding resources, can you yeah. speak to? Um, can you speak to that? Can you speak to the condition, the barrel-like conditions you, you mentioned earlier? Yeah, well, it is systemic, and we can go back to the founding of this uh -huh. country. We can go back to not even the founding of this country, the founding of the first colony that, that would eventually become mm -hmm. the country. We can start the conversation in 1607 and how laws laws were set up to advantage one group and disadvantage other groups. Mm -hmm. And the one group that was advantaged happened to be of European descent and later would describe themselves as yeah. white. I mean, I, we can start, we can go all the way back to again, 1607. But just for the sake of this conversation, I'll start in 1691, mm -hmm. where the Virginia House of Burgesses define a white man as a man with no African or Indian blood whatsoever, except for the male descendants of John Roth and Pocahontas, who shall also be considered a white man. So therefore, it, so yes, I said John Roth and not John Smith. Don't let Disney be the, the, the teacher of mm -hmm. <laughs> your history, because Disney would say his name was John Smith, but no, he wasn't. John Roth was a tobacco magnate who was, who was also 39 years old and Pocahontas was 13. Mm. And so he was trying to find a way to get access to Pocahontas's land. Pocahontas was a Native American. He was a tobacco magnate. And so he was trying to find access to get to the land. And he knew that Pocahontas was the princess, if you will. He was, she was the daughter of the chief of the Native Americans in Virginia at the time. But anyway, so... There, there lies the specious nature of race right there, that the House of Burgesses decides 
who would be white or not. And then if, if you were descended of this Native American and this white man, then you were white also. But clearly you were a person of color. <laughs> so, but the point I'm making is, it started with the laws dating back to the foundation of this country, even before the foundation of this country, yeah. right? The beginnings of this country. And, and, and side note, the House of Burgesses would later become Congress. Yes. The House of Burgesses is also where our very first president started his political career. George Washington was a member of the House of Burgesses. Yeah. So these are the gentlemen who decided, it. they, they started to infuse whiteness versus other nationalities or ethnicities into the law. You know, you move on to 1706 when white indigenous service, would, after they finished their, their servitude, they were given 50 acres, 30 shilling, a musket, and 30 bushel of corn. They were given that. You, you know what I mean? And so that's where you get this idea of why we had supposedly black people, when we were supposedly freed from slavery, would get 40 acres in a mule that we never, never got. got. It was based on that law, the Virginia law of 1705 that gave 50 shillings, you know, 50 acres, 30 shillings, and so on and so forth. Again, benefiting white folk mm -hmm. to the, to the non-benefit of black folk. So you wonder, you ask the question where it comes yeah. from, where, where the division comes from. Well, it's, 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 it's laid into our laws. You know, and then you fast forward to, we often talk about the naturalization law of 1790. But what it doesn't say that it specified that only white immigrants are eligible for naturalized citizenship. Yep. yep. First generation immigrants from Asia, the Caribbean, Central and South America and Africa are expressly denied. Again, so we asked about what, what is systemic racism? Yeah. What is structural racism? Where does it come from? It comes from our laws. It comes from how our country originated. It comes from how it was ran. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, and we forget that in our history books do a poor job of really telling us. Um, I mean, even even like again, the South Carolina, we talk about the Confederacy mm -hmm. and how they were trying to attempting to secede from the Union. And I don't remember in our um in our textbooks, in our history books, that they explicitly said that the Confederacy was trying to attempt to keep slavery intact. They no. never explicitly said No, of course said. not. They were talking about states' yeah. rights. And they were talking about all those kinds of things and trying to euphemize yeah. the fact that they were trying to subjugate Black people. Now we have this conversation of whether these, you know, st you know st uh, statues and flags and stuff should come down. And my argument is, and somewhat tongue-in-cheek and somewhat flippantly, I hope it doesn't sound that way, but the truth of the matter is they lost. Yeah. They lost the yeah. war. So you don't get to fly your exactly. flag. <laughs> you exactly. know what I mean? And why would you, why, why are you celebrating men and perhaps even women that were trying to secede from the union? Why are we erecting statues exactly. to celebrate? Right? I mean, you can still capture history without celebrating people who were against the country, people who were against me living as a free man. Yep. You know what I mean? So that's my point about history. And we don't, we're not honest about this country's history. And we can go on and I, I spent a lot of time in the book, in the book talking about, you know, 
this notion of redlining and greenlining that, mm. that in modern times mm-hmm. that have really created a barrel-like condition. Yeah, yeah. You know, the, the one that I sort of kind of hinged my hat on, if you will, it comes from um, FHA and VA loans between the years 1934 and 1962, which you do the math, that's a 28-year window. Um, let's round up to 30 years <laughs> where FHA loans and VA loans financed $120 billion in real estate throughout the country in an effort to, res- to resurrect the country after the Great Depression. Yeah. So it was, a, it was an economic, it, it was a economic stimulus yeah. Yeah. package. Exactly. exactly. So a 30-year-long economic stimulus pack- package. Well, of the $120 billion, mm-hmm. less than 2% of that $120 billion went to families of color. Wow. So you, in effect, you, in effect, build the middle class in America. No, correction. You, in effect, build the white yes. middle class in America by largely, not largely, by explicitly excluding black and brown people yeah. from that benefit. And you and I both know the quickest way to, to build wealth it's through home ownership, the American dream, yep. land ownership, yep. the American dream. And, and, and then, and so, then on the flip side, the quickest way to create criminals, poverty, is, is to right. cause decline in the community and withhold those those resources, and you that's send exactly. that community or those communities in the opposite direction, and they that's have right. this intergenerational impact. Intergenerational. You know, we weren't we didn't always have gangs on on, on the black side of town. Exactly <laughs> you know, right. but but at some point, when there's poverty, unemployment, despair, right. um, certain type of policing in that community, when you That's have right. all those ingredients, you produce the very thing that you criminalize. That's right. That's exactly right. right? That's right. And I don't think. Crim- go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no. I don't think to, to, to your point. I know you. you uh, a lot of people don't really intellectualize it that way and, and, and conceptualize it that way because, you know, even the notion we talk about redlining, and I don't think a lot of people fully understand what it really meant. Well, redlining was the system that was created by an organization called the Homeowners Loan Corporation, the HOLC, which was spawned by, I, I forget the name, it was the Federal Banking Loan Board or something, but it was federal which was instituted by our Congress, which was sanctioned by our Congress at the time. And they created these lending um, practices um, and laws even and policies and ordinances that would deem entire neighborhoods as bad banking investments. And the ones who were considered bad banking investments got the color red Mm -hmm. on maps, Mm -hmm. on city maps. And then you had also portions of the city that were called good banking investments, desirable banking investments and desirable residents that were green line. But we never talk about green line communities. Mm. Where the HOLC was encouraging banks and lending agencies to invest in those communities and, 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 and encouraging just the opposite in the other communities. So this this myth of meritocracy that we Absolutely. talk about that, you know, <laughs> This, this bootstraps idea, I work hard. Yeah, you, per, you perhaps you work hard, but some other things are working hard for you too. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know what I mean? And that's the rub. Perhaps you, 
And that's the rub that people don't yeah. understand. So let's talk, let's talk more about green line communities. Let's talk more about yeah. that. Um, how, how did, you know, here in my city, we have a special brand of it in Kansas City where, you know, Truce Avenue is the dividing line that divides the city. And if, if and you know, if you were to look at a map of Kansas City today, uh, and you can, you know, if, 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 if someone were to show you where black families live and where white families live, but if you would look at the, the, the section of the map where black families live, if you held the map up and you perhaps look at it from a distance, maybe squint your eyes a little bit, the shaping of the black community looks like a barrel. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> wow. It looks like a barrel. I can show it to you. It looks like a barrel. That's crazy. It looks like a barrel, yeah. man. Yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> and, and so, you know, redlining created these barrel-like living conditions for Black people. To your point yeah. earlier, you know, if we understand that wealth can be intergenerational, you know, we talk about wealth can be passed on through generations. We talk about, you know, trust fund babies and people, you know, they, they, they have money because their family had money. But the opposite is also yeah. true. Poverty is also passed on through generations. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the things we yeah. talk about redlining, we talk about, you know, the systemic nature. You, I love when you use the term. You didn't use it here, but we've had these conversations before, how racism is baked into Yes. The the society, the laws, the policies, and the fabric of who we are. But, yes. you know, one thing I learned not too long ago, about some 12 million acres of land were taken from black families in the early 1900s. Yes. So we didn't get the 40 acres and a mule, but there, and, and there, there are some families who held on to their, their to this day, they've held on to their, their, their land but they, yeah. they speak about the land around them, much of the land around them that has either been lost or was taken by force or fraud in those early yes. years. And so they're still yeah. trying to hold on to the land that was passed on generations ago. But those are the things that I think need to be highlighted so that we can understand how we got here. I think that yes. is a, 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 a valuable question for this country to, to wrestle with and understand the legacy, both the benefit, those who benefit, and those who have been disadvantaged. And racism doesn't even mean that we can't make it. Right. You and I, and we talked about <laughs> our examples of those who, you know, and we know many of our friends and, and family and, and people who have navigated and made it. That's not the yeah. point of racism. It's the fact that you have to navigate right. it in the first place. That's right. right? That it exists. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you a couple more questions, man. Um, what are some ways in which racism today have you have you mm -hmm. seen racism play out in the in the area of education, in the school system? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we 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 see it play out on a daily basis, bro. Um, and we often talk about the achievement gap, you know, trying to measure the gap between largely, you know, brown kids particularly black boys and the rest of other, other students. You know, black boys are typically at the bottom of the, all academic indicators. Black boys are showing them at the bottom of the totem pole. Um, in gifted education programs, they're non-existent. They're not very many 
black boys and gifted, gifted education programs. Um, and, you know, it is a result of racism, the systemic version of it, not the hate mongering. You know, so many people believe that, you know, the country now is made up of two groups of people, <laughs> those who are racist and those who are not. And most people would like to believe that they're yeah. not. Because the racists are the bad apples in society. Again, the neo-Nazis, the skinheads, the white nationalists. So you mean to tell me that T. McGaff is the result of having neo-Nazis in the schools? <laughs> <laughs> huh? That's not true. Yeah, yeah. So what's that play then? What's that play? I'll tell you what's that play. It's a, it's a study that I can refer to that kind of crystallizes it for me. And it, it's a scholar out of Yale University, one of our lauded institutions is trying to measure how implicit bias shows up in preschool. Mm. And so he put together this experiment um, and he asked teachers to watch a video. And on the video, they were gonna be watching for bad behavior, misbehavior in the students. Um, and, and so the students were, student A was a white young lady, white female student, preschool age. Student B was a white male student. Student C was a black female student. Student D was a black male student. And so you told you watching the video to look for when misbehavior is gonna happen. Well, the trick was there was no misbehavior. All of the students were actors. There was not gonna be any misbehavior. And then also the second, the biggest trick of them all, there was some eye scanning um, technology that he had put on the screen of the, the, the monitors that they were watching. So you can screen and monitor where your eyes, who your eyes are watching. Wow. Okay. So, so you tell me, 42%, <laughs> I think the number was 42% of the teachers spent the most time watching student who? D. D. Student D. The white gaze. The white gaze. The black kid, the black male kid, you know, some were called the fly in the milk jug. Yeah. You know, you're always watching what he's doing while the other kids are doing the same thing and worse. Yeah. But you don't you don't see it because you're watching him. And so again, this is a study that's the title of the study is Do Early Educators Implicit Bias Regarding Sex and Race Relate to Behavior Expectations? and recommendations of preschool expulsion and suspension records because he's trying to mask, he's trying to measure and trying to find out why preschool numbers are higher than any other sector of education right now with regard to suspension and expulsion records, uh, um, numbers. That black boys are being, black girls and boys are being suspended and expelled from preschool at a higher rate than black boys and girls are being suspended at high school. Man. <laughs> so, so you ask, how does race show up in our society? That's how it shows up. We've been socialized. Yep. We've been swimming in the waters, as you would say, of white supremacy. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it reminds me uh, of, a, of a young man who's, uh, he was uh, going to high school, middle school, and his mom's a friend, mom and dad's a friend of mine. And he is one of the nicest kids you ever meet. I mean, when you see him, he's going to come and give you a high five or a hug. <laughs> it's just, just one of the nicest kids you ever meet. 
and he's active and he's he's energetic and they yeah. were ready to put him in he was going to predominantly white school they were ready to put him in a, a class for behavioral problems yeah and his mom said no you're not gonna do that to my son like you do too right. many black boys she took him out of that school and she homeschooled him he's a straight mm -hmm. a student <laughs> and he is probably on many of he's a voiceover actor and wow. he's on many cartoons one of the lead actors on many cartoons that some of some of your kids people who are listening to this podcast some of your kids probably will know his voice <laughs> can you imagine what would have happened exactly. if she did not pull him from that school and she yeah. was aware she was aware of the statistics but she yeah. also had the means to pull him out and yeah. be a stay-at-home mom imagine how many black moms can't pull the kids out yeah. yeah man you just made me think i think i got a title to a new book maybe maybe you should write it or maybe i should it's called bridled brilliance mm. i just i just thought of that this second when you were describing that because what if they were trying to bridle that brilliance yeah. and that is happening all over the yeah. country bridled Brilliant. That's your book right there. That's the next one. That's your, it. Could be yours. That's that's, <laughs> that's that's the next one right there, man. Man, I want to I want to start to to come to a close. Um, wh where do we go from here? You know, I, I yeah, I talk about how do we get here, mm -hmm. but I also ask the question at the end of my film, Open Wounds, and you've seen the film. We've done a. Uh, a virtual screening panel. You you moderate a panel for me. Um, I asked the question at the end: Where do you want to go from here? How did we get here? And where yeah. do you want to go from here? So yeah. sh share with us. Uh, I have my thoughts and my you know I'll, I'll share some after. But where where do we go from here? Specifically, you, you can yeah. talk specifically education. You can talk whatever yeah. you want. But where do we go from here? Well, I, I'm hopeful, man. Um, I, I started the conversation talking about some of the work that what my wife and I have been doing um, with, you know, some companies, the Fortune 500 companies are having these conversations. And many of the people that we're having these conversations with, I would describe as white allies, some even nearing white accomplices. Mm -hmm. You know, they are, they're starting to understand and see that we weren't lying all along <laughs> about how race, yeah. that how race works. And I would describe many of us, including yourself, I think the work that you do is an act of hope. It's an act of hope. I think that our people that you've seen over the past three, four months taken to the street and protest, protest is an exercise in mm -hmm. Even though many of us recognize and know that justice has not been steered our way, our direction in most cases. That's why we take to the streets because we, we know that justice hasn't been, but we wouldn't take to the streets if we didn't believe that justice one day will be. It, it, it's, a, you know, I always tell my wife, even on a personal level, I'm, if, if I'm if I don't argue with you, that means I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> but if I will argue yeah. with you, that means I care, and I'm hoping for yeah. better. So I think 
us arguing, us taking to the street, us doing the writing that we do, us doing the studying that we do is an act of hope. I think it's it's one of the guiding principles of equity. It's one of the guiding principles of getting us together, knowing how to live together as human beings, as, as fellow citizens, is that we are hopeful even in the face of brutal facts. I borrowed that from our brother, um, Brian Stevenson from this wonderful publication, Justice. Mm -hmm. He talks about this idea of being hopeful, even in the face of brutal facts. The face of brutal facts that we did witness um, George Floyd dying on television. We witnessed that. We saw that. We, we, we saw Ahmaud Arbery dying too. Yeah. We saw Orlando Castillo, Philando yeah. Castillo die on television. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that just, it blows your mind to think about that. But we still do what we do. Even in the face of those brutal facts, um, we, we saw um, young Timmy Rice in that video die in less than a second. You know, police got out of the car yeah. shooting. You know, said that he looked like he was 20 years old and he was 12. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Not, I'm just laughing because of the, the, the how. You have to because otherwise you'd yeah, be crying. How silly, ridiculous that sounds. Yes, yeah, how you ridiculous know. that sounds, man. That, that we're not allowed childhood, but on this flip side, you know, we had one of our Olympians when we were over in Brazil, I think it was. I can't remember which Olympian it was. One of the swimmers, you know, come to find out he was robbing some convenience store in Brazil. You remember the case? Ryan Lochte, yep. I think that's his name. And then once we found out that he had done something crazy, he was 32 years old. And it was like, well, you know, boys will be boys. He's just a young fella having a good time. He's 32 mm -hmm. years old. But he's still allowed to be a child. Yep. While a child with brown skin can't be a child. You know, we, we begin to admonish him. You know, he shouldn't have been playing with a toy gun. There are a lot of things a 12-year-old shouldn't do. Yeah. <laughs> and he should never bear the brother of responsibility and in, in interaction with an adult. The adult always has more responsibility than the child. Yeah. The adult didn't take the right actions. It, it's no, it's that, you know, that young man should still be with us. Yep. But even in the face of the brutal facts, man, I'm hopeful. I wouldn't do what I do if I wasn't. Yeah. I, I believe um, you're more hopeful than me. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I, t I disagree with that. I think that you are too. <laughs> you are, I mean, you are preaching that gospel, man. You, you preach that. You know what yeah, I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> you know. And that's hope. Yeah. You know what I mean? know. I know. <laughs> I, I know. You. I'm just being real. But you. But you wanted the you wanted the preachers to go and tear the temple up. That's what <laughs> turning over tables. See, because you know, you know, let me go make it theological. You, you start thinking about protests and where would Jesus be during this time? Jesus would have been on the streets. On the street, turning things over. Just yeah. I mean, just wrecking. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. Because wrong <laughs> is wrong. That's right. Wrong is wrong, brother. Right? <laughs> You know, and, yeah. and the major theme in scripture is justice. One That's of the right. major major themes in scripture, especially in the Old Testament, is justice. And Jesus reiterates that in, in the gospel. He paraphrases and reiterates that throughout. He gets yeah. on the Pharisees for knowing the law but not caring about people. Yeah. And and arguably that that is the message of Jesus Christ. And I ain't no yeah. theologian, but you know, I grew up in a Christian household, my mom's a minister, yeah. and I've been a Christian all my yeah. life and the, the premise of his walk, of his message was justice. Yes. Yeah. 
That's very true. Brother. And so, uh-huh. right now, uh, you know, I'm glad you shared what you shared today because, you know, I think about Romans 12:2, the renewing of the mind. You know, you mm-hmm. said many things. I think that, that there are a lot there are people who are going to hear it for the first time. And there's a my hope is that there's a renewing of the mind. I think education, we talk about education, that gives me hope. Because before we do, there has to be soul work. Yes. I'm hopeful when I see my my, the allies, my white brothers and sisters who are in it for the long term. It's not just a moment where they read a couple of books and now they want to fix things. No, they understand this is a a marathon. That's yes, what gives exactly. me hope. But yes. they have been, uh, th- their minds had been renewed. Mm-hmm. Right? That's it, bro. Minds are renewed. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. The renewing mm-hmm. of the mind that realigns us with God's will. Mm. And then that Realize. realigns and at the same time disentangles the Christianity that we have hope in from power. Jesus operated from the margins. Man, say that again, brother. That was ooh, that was good. So while it's the the re, the Holy Spirit renews our mind to Romans twelve two. Don't be conformed to the patterns of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Mm. Right, so that you will discern, prove what the will of God is. Good, acceptable. Uh, I'm missing one. But it's realigning us with the will of God. Mm. Christianity has been hijacked, co-opted by white supremacy, by power, this entanglement with power that goes back even before the settlers came here, before Europeans came here. It was entangled wow. with power. So we, with so, power. so the Holy Spirit is disentangling. What, we, what we're trying to do, and it's not just strictly reading the Bible. It's interdisciplinary. Yeah. What you're, educate, you're educating people in a way that can help them see things differently. See the humanity that has been stripped away yes. by white supremacy slash white ideology slash racism. Stripping away humanity in black and brown people, people of color, and Man. in some white folks mm. who are not even who are not able to see clearly, right? So I, that's where my hope is, Dr. Smith, Rodney. That's where my hope is, is is in the education of people, the re-education. You know, uh, Carter G. Woodson's book, "The Miseducation of the Negro." Um, there's yeah. been a miseducation, a Christian yeah. miseducation of many of my white folks, white brothers and sisters, and many of us. Mm. There's been a miseducation. And I think my right. hope is in the re-education, the renewing of the mind. Mm. Man, when you said what you said about the disentanglement, it's, it's entangled with power and, you know, perversion yes. if you will yes. just you, you know work. what i mean just this yeah just it made me think so my wife and i had an opportunity to go to ghana we closed out the year 2018 and brought in a new year 2019 the year returned mm-hmm. 
and we went to the slave castle, Cape Coast Castle in Ghana, which was, believe it or not, as a descendant of those enslaved Africans, was the highlight of the trip for me. Mm. For a lot of different reasons, but primarily because they have this door of no return, but they have, they, they turn us around and take us out the door of no return and they turn us around and it's a big sign that says the door of return. Mm. When, <laughs> when I saw that door, I lost it. I'm talking about one of them ugly cries. Yes. <laughs> because a couple of years prior, I was imagining in my mind, you know, thinking about who was that first African that started my family line in America. And I went to sleep trying to think about him, trying to find him in my mind's eye, and I saw mm -hmm. him. And when I saw him, he was in the hull of the ship. Mm. <laughs> so, and when he saw me, he sat mm. up. And we were looking at each other face to face. Wow. And I had never had a experience like that and i remember talking to my wife about it and she was like boy go to sleep you crazy you sleepy <laughs> but then one of my partners at work i was working at a university in nashville at the time he said man you don't underestimate the, the power of god he was a religion professor and he said what if god allowed that to happen you travel metaphysically <laughs> I, I, I thought of the word transfiguration but Transfiguration, similar to yeah. what I remember you explaining to me about uh, Black Panthers, that transfiguration. Yeah. I, I, I That totally blew my mind. That went over my head in, the, in this, when you broke that scene down for me. Um, but yeah, so I thought about that experience when I walked back through that door. But I was saying the piece about when you were talking about the entanglement is the dungeons that at the head of the castle, above the dungeon, they built a church. Mm. It was a church mm. on top of the dungeons where they were having church service and they had African people in dungeons under the yep. church. Yep. Yep. You know, using God yep. and their supposed superiority to justify yep. the dehumanization of, of other human yep. beings. I mean, simultaneously, how do you reconcile that and trying to make this argument that they were in heaven while we were in hell. Yep. I mean, what you just said to me make, took me back to that moment. It was just, it, it, it helped me to untangle my mind yeah. that they were grossly wrong, grossly inaccurate in what the kingdom of God really is. About. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, man. I wonder. Yeah, no, I wonder what. You know, sometimes what white Christians think, you think that heaven is going to be segregated? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, do you really? If there is a heaven and there is a hell, I don't think that they're segregated. <laughs> I don't think that there's a white section and a black section. I, I just don't. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, well, anyway. No, that's good. Thanks for sharing that, man. Brother, it's always, always a pleasure, man. Always a pleasure, brother. Man, I, I appreciate you coming and hanging out at the intersection, parking and getting out and and. You know, at the intersection, there's always a tree. Where we're from, there's always a tree on the on the corner, and and, we're, and that's what the old men, the old heads sit at the tree, and then they yeah. talk and, and wisdom. And some of them are cutting up, but you walk away there's some wisdom there too. And so I hope that um, those who are listening to this podcast kind of got a feel for 
what it meant to sit under a tree in the black community and or at the barbershop, this intersection. Um, so it's, it's, it's so many ways we can go with that. But um, my, I appreciate you so much. Um, I learned from you. Um, you helped me grow. And I've always looked up to you, always. I've always, you know, since we were kids, playing football in the streets, I always watched you. And I'm still watching you. Absolutely. So I, I appreciate the work that you do. Um, keep inspiring the next generation. Keep renewing the minds. And that God-ordained gift and skill that you have and developed, keep renewing the minds. And you'll, and you'll continue to, 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 to uh, help me with my hope. <laughs> I have hope in the long term. But I'm, I'm, I'm struggling a little bit in the present until, I, until minds are renewed. The more I see yeah. that happen, the more energized I get. But then I get energized as well because I know God has called me and, and others to this. And so yes. the calling itself gives me hope. It doesn't my, my, so just so people don't, understand, don't, don't mis, misunderstand, I haven't lost hope in God. I haven't That's lost right. hope in my faith in long term. It's just right. hope in the present. Um, yeah. How much will we actually see? But um, I'm in it. Yeah. I'm in it with you. I, I get it, man. I totally get it. It, 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 it. it is discouraging at moments. It takes you down through there. Yep. Sometimes it does. Well. Yeah. I'm hopeful, brother. Yes, sir. Thank you, man. I appreciate you. Okay, bro. God bless you. All right, bro. Once again, I want to thank my special guest, Dr. Rodney Smith, for his time, his wisdom, his friendship, his conversation here on Intersections with Phil Allen Jr., before I let you go, I want to remind you about my documentary short film, Open Wounds, available for viewing right now by going to philallenjr.com forward slash open wounds and be on the lookout for my book, Open Wounds, which is set to be released in February 2021. Thank you for meeting me at Intersections.